Is this on? Is it warming up? Is this on? Okay. All right. Let's get started a little early here today. Just to make you sure you're in the right place, this is the Monday Bible studies, everybody. <laughs> Nobody's leaving yet. All right, and we're here to study the book of Acts. An eight weeks, this is an eight-week series on the book of Acts. And if you remember, it looks like a lot of veterans here, so you probably already know this, but just in review. We put next week's questions on the table, so make sure... Uh, you take those with you and spend 30, 40 minutes during the week answering those questions so you can be prepared for the next lesson. Um, what else do we need to talk about? Uh, we're just here to study the Bible. We appreciate uh, Park City's Baptist Church allowing us to use their facilities and, and uh, setting up a caterer for us and everything. Yes, sir. <laughs> That'd be great. Uh, and so this is an independent, I mean, it's, it's open for not only all y'all, but if you want to bring a guest or, or anybody you want to, your friends, relatives, everybody. And we're just here to study the Bible. We have absolutely no agenda other than that. If we don't have your email, one of the things I do is send out a, the message in advance, so you should have gotten the email on Acts chapter 1 like last Thursday or Friday, and if, if you didn't, it's because we don't have your email, and if you want to be on that list and get the messages every week, then uh, give myself or Mike Mansfield back there your email address, and we'll put you on the list, and you'll get everything. We also, if something happens like bad weather and we have to cancel, we can let you know, or if we're moving to a different room, you know, who knows what can happen. We can always uh, send that out by email if we have your address. If we don't have your address, uh, there's nothing I can do. But uh, we are going to study the book of Acts, and uh, today, if there's no other questions, uh, in the book of Acts, Jesus made promises to his disciples in the Gospels that are going to be fulfilled in the book of Acts, just like Ralph Cramden promised Alice in this movie clip. All right. Ralph Cramden does it again, right? All right, so if you have your Bible or your electronic device, open it up to Acts chapter 1. In the four Gospels, that begin the Bible, you could compare them to Genesis. They're the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. They're the beginning of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And Acts, you could even look at as the Exodus, the moving out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. God leads out uh, a heavenly people, his, his people, and delivers them, an historical account of the beginning of the spread of the church. So this is the beginning. This is how the church is going to give you a history of how the church was going to uh, be begun. The author is the same author of the Gospel of Luke. 
Can anybody tell me who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Luke, yes, uh, exactly. So uh, Luke, he's, he's one of my favorite guys. Another trivia question, who is the only non-Jewish author of the New Testament? Luke. Got it. You're a genius here. Exactly. Luke is the only non-Jewish uh, author of the New Testament. And as you know, uh, to be in the New Testament, to be in what they call the, the canon, the inspired word of God, uh, it has to have apostolic authority, so it's got to be written by one of the apostles. But in Luke's case, he spent a considerable amount of time with both Peter and Paul. He was on Paul's second and missionary, second and third missionary journeys, and so he had a very uh, exclusive access to, to the apostles, and he spent uh, two years ministering to Paul when he was in jail in Caesarea, and two years ministering to Paul when he was in jail in Rome. So he got his information from the apostles, but he also says in the beginning of his, his gospel account of Luke, this is like volume two, by the way, Acts is like volume two, because he, he addresses it to the same guy, Theophilus. Now Theophilus means friend of God, or lover of God, and so... It could mean just the broad audience of Christians, but it's probably referring to uh, somebody who was either called that or had that name. And both Luke and uh, Acts are both addressed to this same guy. And so it's like volume one and two of Luke's writings about uh, Jesus and the church. So this is the second volume of the same author, the same audience, and we can tell from, from what he writes here that he is a companion of Paul and knows firsthand eyewitness account of the things that happened to Paul in his missionary journeys and also later on when he got arrested. And his frequent use of we tells you that he was there. He said, we went here and we did this and we, so uh, he was an eyewitness and he was there, saw it and heard all this history that he's recording there for us. Uh, we know uh, uh, Paul had this high regard for him because in several epistles he mentions Luke and what a good job he's doing. In Colossians 4.14, 4, he, uh, he calls Luke the beloved physician. So we take it that he's a well-educated medical doctor. We know he's a Gentile. He's, he's a Greek and he probably was in the church at Antioch when Paul and Barnabas were there ministering, and uh, it's possible that Paul led him to Christ there. And he went with him on his second and third missionary journeys into Asia Minor and into Greece. So Luke was a, an eyewitness to most of what he wrote here in the book of Acts, and uh, his purpose statement, his purpose for writing the book of Acts is to give a historical account of the transition. So the book of Acts is a transitional book from what we call the Old Testament and the Gospels are kind of like a bridge, but Acts is a transition from one covenant to the new covenant, the old covenant to the new covenant, from Israel to the church, uh, transition from Judaism to Christianity. Uh, it's the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth 
but now it's from his glorified position in heaven. So Jesus, we're going to see in today's lesson, in Acts 1, Jesus ascended to heaven, and then he continued to have a ministry through the church on earth, through the apostles and the development and growth of the church. So Jesus continued to be active, but he did so by sending his spirit to indwell both the apostles and all the believers, the whole church as well, so that they could grow and develop into this church that we know today. So uh, Jesus uh, guided and, and comforted and encouraged his apostles and all the writers of the New Testament. And uh, also, it, Acts serves as a historical account of the coming of the Holy Spirit which really marks the New Testament. Uh, people have asked me, and, and I think it's a, a very difficult question, but it's an important question. We see the Holy Spirit mentioned many times in the uh, Old, Old Testament, but there's a slight difference of how he's mentioned in the New Testament. Something changes, and it has to do with what the New Covenant or the New Testament is. The the prophets, in particularly Jeremiah and also Ezekiel, prophesied, predicted that the, God would make a new covenant with his people that was different from the old covenant, and the main difference would be that he would put his spirit on our hearts. And so we see in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells all believers. Everybody believes in Jesus Christ. It's now indwelled by the Holy Spirit which is kind of a difficult concept because being part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So this must mean something to do with his function and, and how he operates. And that's what really changes from the old, old Covenant to the New. In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit obviously is there, and you see him mentioned, and he fills. I mean, if you remember the story of David, King Saul was filled with the Spirit, and so God was directing him and helping him. But then when he fell into all that sin, the Holy Spirit left him, and the Holy Spirit came into David, and that's how he beat Goliath and, and did so many things in his uh, kingship. But then uh, when he fell into sin with Bathsheba, the Holy Spirit left. And so the New Testament is different in that not only the Holy Spirit indwells us and stays permanently, even though you, you and I don't deserve it, and you would think he'd leave us at times like he did David, the new covenant is different in that when the Holy Spirit indwells you, it's a permanent thing. And it's also different in that the main thing he does differently from the old to the new is changes your heart. And you've seen it with yourself, your own life, and a lot of people around you that believe in Christ and their attitude, their way of thinking, their desires just change. They just change. And it's not because they're smart. Or, and it's not just because they have a strong willpower. God changes their heart. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. He changes your heart. He changes your desires and, and what you want to do and where you want to go and who you want to hang out with. You, you literally are regenerated. That's a word that a lot of theologians use for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's regeneration. You're changed from within. You're changed from within. We are very aware of the changes from without. <laughs> you know, uh, we age and things change, but this is a change from within, 
And it's kind of the opposite of the physical aging that we go through. It's a regeneration where we are renewed and we are improved as well. And so this is an historical account of the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives, which marks the beginning of the church, marks the beginning of what Jesus called the new covenant. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said, take this bread and take this wine and drink it. This is the new covenant. It represents the new covenant in my blood. And do, you know, so I'm going to get up and, and I'm going to sacrifice myself and that's going to be the beginning of the new covenant. And I want you to remember that. And then the church is born in Acts chapter 2, next week's lesson, when the Spirit comes upon not only the apostles, but then all the people that believe in Christ there, the Spirit of God comes upon them and indwells them and begins changing their lives from within. They become different people and think differently. So this is the historical account of that, that activity of Christ upon the lives of believers through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, the title is the Acts of the Apostles, but it could very well be the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the apostles, because that's really what happens. That's really what's going on here. Uh, several themes in the book of Acts, uh, the theme of transition, everything is changing, uh, as I said, from Israel to the church, from Judaism to Christianity. Uh, God is directing his church through the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, also a theme of the continuation of Jesus' ministry. You remember at the Last Supper also, Jesus told his disciples, I'm leaving you, and they were all upset about that, as you can imagine. No, no, you don't go. What do you mean you're leaving? We've given up everything. Don't leave. What are we going to do? And Jesus said, well, it's actually to your benefit. It's actually to your benefit because when I leave, I'm going to send, this is in John 14, verse 12, I'm going to send my spirit. I'm going to send you a helper, paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to help you. So now, having that empowerment, you are actually going to be doing the ministry. You've been watching me for three years do everything. Now you are going to do it. And he said, you know all those works that you saw me do? You are going to do greater works than you saw me do, which is a wild statement. Because, I mean, first time I ever read that, I thought, wait a minute, you walked on water? I don't think I'm going to be able to top that. But what he means by you're going to do greater things is, we're going to see in today's lesson that there's 120 believers in Jerusalem. That's it. Three years of ministry and there's only 120 believers in Jerusalem waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. On the first day the Spirit comes of Pentecost, what's going to happen is they're going to be filled with the Spirit. They're going to go out and, and, and preach the gospel and 3,000 people are going to believe the first day. That never happened in the ministry of Christ. And that's what Jesus meant. You're going to change the world. That's much bigger deal than walking on water or any of that stuff. You're going to change the world. And they did. And, and in Acts uh, 17, uh, in several weeks we'll see, when they came into a town, Paul and the boys came to a town to preach the gospel. They went, the people that were there went, oh no, here come those guys again. What guys? Those guys that have changed the whole world. They've turned the world upside down. Everybody's going nuts. They're all going over to this Jesus guy. 
right? And so they did. They did something incredible that they never dreamed they'd be able to do. And so the contents of the book of Acts, you see the continuation of God's ministry, His purposes in the church, the mission and the message will be spread quickly and rapidly through a large geographic area, and that progress will occur in spite of opposition. A big part of the book of Acts is the opposition against this movement to Christ. And you'll see the inclusion of the Gentiles, which surprises, of course, all the Jews that Jesus came to first. And then uh, the life and the organization and the working of that first century church. Uh, some of the contrasts that I want you to be aware of as we go through Acts is that in the gospel, the four gospels, so you've got a contrast between uh, what you're aware of in Jesus' ministry and then the changes that happen in the uh, book of Acts. In the Gospels, there's no church. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's no church. It's all about Israel. And in Acts, the church is born and grows. In the Gospels, Jesus offers his life. In Acts, Jesus offers his power through his spirit. The Gospels plant the seeds of Christianity, but in Acts, we see the growth of Christianity. The Gospels tell us of Christ crucified and risen. Acts speaks of Christ ascended and exalted. And the Gospels modeled the Christian life as lived by the perfect man, Jesus. But the Acts models it as lived out by imperfect people, imperfect man, the apostles and all the other, the rest of the church. And the Gospels end with the resurrection of Christ. Acts gives us Christ post-resurrection ministry for 40 days, and then his ascension. So a lot going on from the Gospels to the book of Acts that takes us to, into the church age. So if you'll uh, look at Acts chapter 1, uh, Luke's, Luke is writing, and he says, the first account I composed, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke, and he dresses the guys writing it too. And I think this guy's in Philippi because we'll see in that uh, second missionary journey, uh, they plant, Paul and Luke and the guys plant a church in Philippi, which up there in Macedonia. And then he leaves. Paul would typically, when he moved on, he'd leave one of his disciples there to continue working with him. And he left Luke in Philippi. And so I think he had a great relationship with that church there and knew everybody in that area. So I think that's, and because this guy has a Greek name, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So the first account I composed, Theophilus, the Gospel of Luke, was all about that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, the ascension to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And to these he also presented himself alive so the resurrection, post-resurrection presentation, he appeared to them clearly after his suffering on the cross by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so it's interesting that Jesus not only appeared to the disciples, to the apostles, but also 
over 40 days, he would, he would come and go constantly. We have, uh, just in the Gospels and the book of Acts, and then Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians, about 12 appearances that are spoken of in the New Testament. But I take it there's quite a few more. He would come and go all, you know, every day during that 40 days. And uh, Paul relates in 1 Corinthians 15 how he told them to go up and he would meet them in the Galilee and they go up there and you know the story it's also in John 21 they're up there fishing and here's Jesus on the shore and Peter dives in and they swim up and they all have breakfast there and they touch him and he eats and so there's no doubt it's bodily Jesus it's the bodily resurrection he's real and they see him so many times and in so many different places and for such a long period of time there can be no doubt. I mean, this is not a hallucination. Critics would say, well, you know, the power of suggestion, they, you know, they wanted to see him. And they saw something, and, you know, so they said they saw him. And how, But over 40 days, all these different times, in so many different places, eating, touching, the whole deal, speaking to them, teaching, so without a doubt, they knew, they believed, there was no doubt in their mind that this was the risen, bodily, resurrected Christ. And he was teaching them as well. And so I think it took him 40 days to kind of clue them in as to what they were supposed to be doing. Wait a minute, you want us to go out? We kind of thought you would continue to do it. Now you want us? What do you, now, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? So probably, you, I don't know how you got it done in 40 days with these dummies, you know. <laughs> but gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. And so one of the things he was teaching is that something big's getting ready to happen. So stay here in Jerusalem and don't go because something big's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. Now, Passover is, you know, generally when we also celebrate Easter. So that's typically the end of March or the 1st of April. Depending on the moon, it, it had to do with when the, you had a, I forgot, some kind of full moon on some deal or something. Uh, but Pentecost was always 50 days. That's what Pentecost means, 50. So it was always 50 days after Passover. And so Jesus was with them for 40 of those, and then they were to pray and to meditate and prepare themselves for the coming of the Spirit during those 10 days. And then you'd have the day of Pentecost, which we're going to look at in uh, Acts chapter 2 next week. So he said, you stay here, and you're going to get the promise fulfilled that I made to you at the Last Supper when I told you I was going to send you a helper. I was going to send you my Spirit. And so be patient, wait here. And he says, verse 5, he explains what the Spirit's going to do. For John, talking about John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, two different guys. John the Baptist baptized with water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so what he's saying is, you were identified originally with uh, repentance. Back when John the Baptist, when you came out to the Jordan River and John the Baptist baptized you, that was an identification. You were getting in there to say, I repent of my sins. I, I fully admit and recognize that I'm a sinner, and I repent of that, and I'm prepared for my Savior. 
But this is a different deal. He's talking about here when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you're now identified with Him, and you're now belong to Him. In a sense, He seals you as His, puts His seal on you, and you belong to Him. So this is a passive activity for us. Whereas the water baptism, you had to go out there and you had to get in the water and you had to make uh, the pronouncement. Uh, but here, he's just going to come upon you and he's going to come into your heart and change you. It'll be purely an activity of God and a passive activity of us. The active part of it is when we step out in faith and allow the Spirit of God to use us in his ministry. Right? So when you do anything, maybe you go on a mission trip, maybe you agree to serve in some capacity in your church, uh, whatever, when you step out in faith to do that, you probably go, I don't know how I'm going to do that. I, I'm not qualified to do that. And guess what? You're right. But God is going to help you. God is going to enable you, empower you in that sense to do that. If someone asks you to give uh, an account of Jesus, or why do you believe this, or a defense of the faith, same deal. You're probably not qualified in your own mind to do that, but if you'll just step out in faith, God will use you. That's what it comes down to. And so that's, that's what the Holy Spirit uh, does. Uh, he, he comes upon you, but then you are expected to be active through faith, and what he's gonna, how he's going to use you. So that's what he's talking about here in verse 5. So you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this is something that happens to everybody who believes in Christ. Uh, you may not have even known it. I'm sure you, like you're like me, you didn't feel it. But you know it's true because not only the Word of God says it's true, but over time you experience the change. And listen, I know most of you, and you're incredibly hard-headed and stubborn. You don't get changed just, you know, on a whim. You don't wake up and say, I think I'll change all my habits. You become different people, and I can tell you, you have. I'll witness to that. Because God has come upon you through His Spirit and changed you from the inside out. You become different people. You think differently. And this is the baptism that he's talking about here. Verse 6. And so another time when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, and this kind of tells you where they still are. Anybody ever go on a car trip with their kids? And after about 10 miles they go, are we there yet? No, we got about 500 miles to go. And about an hour later, how much further? Are we there yet? And this goes on throughout the whole trip. Well, that's what the disciples about. All through the Gospels, you have them asking Jesus, when are you going to set up the kingdom? Because in their mind, this is the political military kingdom that he's going to set up, and he's going to make them the head guys and give them all the authority and power. So... They're like, you know, oh boy, we can't wait, right? So they're still asking that. They don't have any idea yet of what we call the church age, that period between the first coming and the second coming. 
is still a mystery to them at this point in time. They don't realize that a kingdom of God can't be inhabited by sinners. They've got to go out and change the world so that all who have come to Christ and had their sins forgiven and therefore the imputed righteousness of God in their lives can be made citizens of the kingdom, right? And so Jesus is going, don't concern yourself with when I'm going to set up the kingdom. I don't even want you to know that because I want you to live every day in a sense of urgency you know, because you don't know when it's going to be. You don't know if it's going to be tomorrow, the next week, or a month, or a thousand years from now. In their case, it's been 2,000 years. But what has happened during that 2,000 years that's a good thing? You know, they wanted it set up right then. Frankly, I want it set up tomorrow. I got too many troubles. I got too many problems. I don't want to have to go through any pain or suffering or death. I want it set up tomorrow, right? But what is happening during that church age period that's necessary and tells you why there's a delay, why there's that gap between the first coming and the second coming? Millions of people have come to Christ. Millions of people are continuing to come to Christ. And so that's what the church age is all about. That's why the delay between the first coming and the second coming. God in all patience and love and grace and mercy is giving every opportunity, everybody in the world, to come, everybody to come who will come. That's the delay, see. And they don't realize that. I don't think we would realize that. We would also want it set up immediately. But God has a plan that's better. So they ask him in verse 6, Lord, is it this time you're, you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know. That's not good for you. I could tell you, but it wouldn't be good for you. You don't want to know. I, I don't want you to know. Times are epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He will determine that. But here's the big one, verse 8. Probably, probably the, the whole book of Acts is, is caught up in this one verse, 8. But here's the deal. Here's what you need to know. You shall receive power power of God when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. A huge deal. A huge deal. Power. Power. What kind of power? Well, just a quick story. Uh, you know that Alfred Nobel was the guy, Nobel was the guy who invented dynamite. And it was an incredible thing, you know, that, that this concoction that he had would blow up like that. And he said, man, that thing unleashes an incredible power, that little stick of dynamite. And so he, this friend of his was an expert in Greek, and he said, what is the Greek word for explosive power? I want to name my invention after that. And the guy said, it's dynamis. And you would pronounce it dynamite in English. And so Nobel named his invention dynamite, explosive power. And that's kind of a good illustration for God's view of it. It's God's power in us 
to do his work, to serve and to glorify him. And so it's, a, it's that life-changing power that, that God gives us within us. Uh, and what kind of power? Is it uh, political, military, like they're looking for? No, it's that power that changes hearts. It's that power that changes lives we're here, we're, we're here talking about. And how much power does God give us? Or what kind of power? Does he give super physical strength? No. That would be bad. Just read the story of Samson. That would not even be good. That ruined Samson to have that, that physical strength. If you read that story, you can see it. Did, did he give them the power to do miraculous events at their own choosing? Like, I'm going to go out and do, I'm going to create a billion dollars for myself. I'm going to go buy the winning lottery ticket. I'm going to, you know, no, not at all. That would ruin me too. God knows what we need. That's not what he's giving. He's giving the power to change hearts. Our own heart and in the message of the gospel, the hearts of other people that we live with, that we have access to, that we witness to. And that's what this is about. I'm going to give you power to do what? To be my witnesses. To be my witnesses. So that's what the Spirit is all about. Enabling us, helping us to become witnesses. Witnesses for Christ. Okay? And four ways, just real quick, four ways that all of us can be a witness. Number one, your personal testimony. I mean, who can refute that? You say, well... Uh, I can just tell you from my own point of view, in my own life, this has happened. Secondly, uh, just a simple gospel truth, you know, like the four laws or, you know, the shortest, simplest gospel you can think of to give somebody. You know, Christ died for your sins. Pretty simple. Thirdly, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to make a defense, a defense. So what's a defense? It's like apologetics they, they use, you know. How can you say this, this, and this? Or what makes you believe that, you know, you're ready to give a defense? And fourthly, what we all are aware of is what you might call lifestyle evangelism. Lifestyle. You know, how you live. What you do with your life and how you live. And people watch. People are aware. People know. And so that is going to, the Holy Spirit's going to enable us to do those four things if we'll let him. He's not going to force us. We have to step out in faith and allow him, trust him, live by faith in doing it. All right? And so he goes on to say, verse 9, and after he had said these things, so this is his final teaching, that Acts 1-8 command, we call it the Great Commission, a lot of times you've seen uh, Matthew 28 as quoted as the Great Commission. I think this is a better one. Not only is it simpler and shorter, but it includes the emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, after he had said these things, he was lifted up. So now you're up on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem, and Christ ascends to heaven. And just like he said, you know, part of this, why did Jesus leave? Because he wants, it's his plan, God's plan, to use the people, us, his, his apostles, the church, in this ministry now. 
And so Jesus goes to heaven to sit hand, sit at the right hand of God the Father. You know, you probably all learned the Apostles' Creed, and, and you probably said that a hundred times. I believe. And, and uh, so that's where he is. He was lifted up while they were looking on. Can you imagine the scene? There's 120 people, believers, and they're up there on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is talking to them, and when he finishes what he just said, and they're going, whoa. And they're all looking up like that, like, you know, just they're blown away, and they are speechless. And then there's two angels standing there next to them. And, you, and, they, and the angels give them what I would call a rebuke. What are you bunch of dummies doing staring up into the air? Get busy. Get busy. You know why? Because Christ will be coming back someday in just the way he left. And you need to have done something in between now and then. That's the message of these angels. Look what they said. As they were engaging, in, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing, we're told later they're angels, stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come again in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So that's a promise of the second coming. He's coming back, but you've got some work to do in between now and then. You have a stewardship, a mission that you've been given. So let's go, man. And they also said, excuse me, uh, verse 12. So now they come back. They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That's about three-quarters of a mile. Uh, in the, one of the Sabbath traditions was that, you know, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, and so you can only walk a certain distance. And so they said you can only walk about three-quarters of a mile. Because that was the furthest uh, place, I think, in Jerusalem to the temple. So they wanted to give themselves plenty of ability to get to the temple, I think. Okay? And when they had entered into the house they were staying, they went up to the upper room. Now, you've probably heard a lot about the upper room. Um, we, we find out in Acts 12 that that upper room where they hung out was the, in the house of John Mark's mother you know, who wrote the Gospel of Mark and was probably a very very young man at that time and hung out with all the disciples. He was one of the 120 guys. And so uh, she hosted them there during this whole time. And so they went back to the upper room in verse 13 where they were staying, and he names all the people that were there. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew. These are all the apostles. These are the guys that, the 12 that Jesus uh, had picked, minus Judas, of course. But there's a different Judas, the son of James. That's a common name, but they always tell you which Judas, Judas it is. One that was remaining is Judas, the son of James. Judas Iscariot, we're going to learn in a minute, uh, went out and committed suicide. And what were they doing? Verse 14, these all with one mind, all together, unified, together, and their common bond with Christ, 
They were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned, by the way. But she was there and with his brothers, which I think is very interesting. And his brothers are named in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. He had four brothers, and they're named there. And at that time, it says they didn't believe in him. They even went to him and said, you need to tone this down, brother. We're getting in some hot water over here. Don't, did you know the trouble you're causing there in Jerusalem? We're going to all be in trouble if you don't shut up. Now, you need to come on home with us. And it says they were not believing in him. So what happened between then and now? Well, I think Paul pretty much tells us that. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Jesus appeared, after the resurrection, he appeared to his brothers. And so I think, you know, they were somewhat doubtful and they were probably sad they lost their brother. But when he appeared to them after the resurrection, it was like, okay, I got it. I, I'm, count me in, you know. And so they were there as well, and they are now with the program. And James, of course, becomes the head elder of the church there in Jerusalem and writes the book of James, which is in your New Testament. And also Jude, the Jude here uh, is the, of, of his brother, is the Jude who, who writes the book in the New Testament as well. So they were very active. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of 120 persons, remember we said that, uh, was there together, and he said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, now talking about Judas Iscariot, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He betrayed Jesus and guided the temple guard there to arrest him. He knew that they would be there in the Garden of Gethsemane. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry during the three years that we did this. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called the field of blood. So that's, a, that's the end for Judas Iscariot there in Jerusalem. For it is written, and believe it or not, that's actually fulfilling prophecy. And he quotes there from uh, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. And so he was saying that this guy uh, is out of here, and, and they're going to have a new apostle take his place there in Psalm 109. And that's uh, a lot, there's a lot of Old Testament passages, prophecies like that, that we probably would never understand if the New Testament didn't explain it to us. So he says, Peter says, it's therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us uh, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John and the day, until the day he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men. So he basically said, we need to replace Judas Iscariot 
and we need, to get, we need to replace them with somebody who's been here from the very beginning and who saw everything Jesus did. So he will also be an eyewitness like we are, to be uh, one of us. And so they came up with two guys that everybody uh, thought would fit the bill. Uh, these two guys, Joseph and uh, Matthias, and they prayed over them and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show us which of these two thou hast chosen to occupy the, this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So now we're back to 12 again. Before the church is even born, they're going to begin it with uh, these 12 apostles who had this, uh, you know, you might say a special uh, office in the church. Uh, to be an apostle, you had to have been with him from the very beginning and been an eyewitness to everything he said and did, as they said, and also called to that office by the Spirit of God. Uh, I'll just say one thing about drawing lots. Is surely you've been thinking what I'm thinking. Really? You threw dice to see who would be the, <laughs> the apostle? Well, I think what you're seeing there is the providence of God, and they're just uh, using a tool that the priests used in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. So uh, you can see things changing now, but uh, they're still, they still use that as a tool for God's providence. Okay, both of these guys seem to be ready to do this, qualified to do it. So it's kind of a win-win a deal. And we'll just, by chance, throw this and, uh, and trust in the providence of God. And I say that because uh, I don't want uh, this group to go out and go, I've got a new way of making decisions. I never thought that was a problem until one time I actually taught a class on decision-making and the will of God. Decision-making and the will of God. And I was shocked how many people said, oh yeah, when I'm trying to make a decision, I ask God to show me a shooting star or to, you know, they'd, they'd come up with something. And I said, what? Are you serious? One guy, the, the all-time guy, said, Oh, yeah, um, I do it off bumper stickers. I'm so, I promise you this is the truth. This guy said, I love to look at all the funny bumper stickers, and I pray in the car. And so while I'm praying, I pray that God, you know, somebody will pull in front of me or the guy I pull up to will have a bumper sticker that will give me, you know, God's view of this situation. I'm going, is, this, is, this is a joke, and he's coming to the punchline. It was no joke. He said, like, I was thinking about changing jobs, getting a new job, and I was praying whether I should stay or leave. And I pulled up, and this guy did a real hard break, and I got up real close to him, and the bumper said, sticker said, desist or something like that? Is that a word? In other words, don't come, you know, don't hit me, I think is what it meant. And uh, he said, I knew immediately to stay where I was. I said, so now the rest of your life you're going to make all your decisions based on bumper stickers. You know, so anyway, uh, I don't think what that, that that's what this is saying. So I wouldn't go around throwing dice as you try to make all your decisions. I'd use the brain that God gave you, okay? 
And so just uh, a few contrasts of Jesus' ascension versus his second coming that we're looking now looking forward to that they said we're going to have. When Jesus left, he left somewhat in secret because only his disciples saw him. When he returns, it'll be to the whole world will see him. When he left, it was in peace. When he comes back, it'll be in war, you know, Armageddon. He left as a bondservant. He'll return as a conquering king. Uh, he left without the kingdom set up. When he comes back, it'll be to set up the kingdom. When he left, he was a spiritual savior. He comes back as a physical savior. When he left, uh, he left with Satan in control of the world. When he comes back, it will be to destroy Satan, to bind him. When he left, it was in the time of the Gentiles. When he comes back, it will be to restore Israel. He left with people weeping that he'd left. He comes back, people weeping in fear because he returned. There's going to be a judgment. He ascended into the clouds. He descends from the clouds. Uh, so when he left, there were only two angels there. And when he comes back, you'll have the whole heavenly host. So quite a scene, quite a promise that we look forward to as well. So, again, the overriding theme is that Jesus is alive. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he has promised to return in all power to judge and to rule, to set up his kingdom. But until then, we the church have been given authority and power to act as his witnesses. That's where he is, and that's what we're supposed to do while he's there until he comes back, right? And so we praise God that he has given us the resources to do that. If you remember at the Last Supper when he said, I'm leaving and I'm going to let y'all carry on the ministry, they went, what? That's impossible. I want you guys to go out and change the world. Say, what? But when the Spirit came, it changed the whole deal. And that was the culmination, the fulfillment of his promise. And we, we see, we'll see that next week when the Spirit comes, the day of Pentecost. A bunch of pretty cool stuff happens. So don't miss it. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word. And we praise you, Lord, that Jesus came. And we praise you that he's now in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting to us this ministry that you've given us. And Thank you for giving us the power to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Thank you.